Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about how we can build a freer, fairer, and more prosperous future. Those of you who are regular listeners, you know we're huge fans of immigration here at the pod. That's both a straightforward outgrowth of our belief in maximizing free markets, our commitment to the proposition that human dignity doesn't stop at some borderline drawn on a bit of paper, and our practical awareness that immigration has played a vital role in propelling innovation throughout American and global history, which is why it makes it so very frustrating when our national leaders not only fail to pursue better, more open immigration policies, but actively pursue the opposite. The latest such example is how the Trump administration used an Obama administration rule that prohibited international students from getting visas on the basis of their attendance at online-only universities. Now, this wasn't a particularly great idea even back when it was first put in place, but you'll never guess what happened recently. And by never guess, I'm assuming right now that you've just woken from a coma, and the first thing you've done is start up your favorite pre-coma podcast. COVID-19, I'm talking about COVID. It's led many universities, including prominent places like Princeton and Harvard, to go online only this fall. You can see the rub. If they're online only, they can't extend student visas to their international students. And so the Trump administration, well, it saw its chance to kill two liberal birds with one stone. They could cite the online-only rule for student visas, throwing hundreds of thousands of international students into a state of anxiety, whether they'd have to leave the country with only an unfinished and very expensive degree to their name. They might not decide to come back, which is the point for the administration. Now, thankfully, under threat of court reversal, the administration eventually backed down, but the damage was already done for many. To explain why that is, and just how sadomasochistic this policy would have been, I've invited today's guest to join us. Caleb Watney is a friend of the pod. We've had him on in the past a couple times, and he is a resident fellow for tech and innovation at the R Street Institute. He also has a new essay out with The Atlantic titled, America's Innovation Engine is Slowing. Welcome to the show, Caleb. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Okay, so that doesn't sound great. I mean, I don't think I'm giving away uh, any spoilers <laughs> here, but it sounds like a bad thing for America's innovation engine to slow. What's going on? Yeah, it's uh, kind of a a scary situation. So obviously, I I wasn't able to look at every factor that is sort of affecting rates of innovation in the United States. But I think historically, three, you know, crucially important cogs have been international talent flows, just, you know, where do the best and the brightest uh, immigrants from all over the world want to come? Historically, they've always wanted to come to the United States. Uh, Number two is our world-class university system. Um, by most metrics, uh, you know, we, the United States is supposed to have, you know, many of the top universities in the world. And certainly you see that in terms of um, where international students are, are traveling, but then universities themselves end up being really important for innovation in terms of university patenting offices, in terms of basic science production. Uh, and then the third factor is sort of our big industrial uh, clusters or talent clusters, um, which basically create what economists call agglomeration effects. Uh, which basically means that total output uh, is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so basically, you have um, big urban cores. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley is probably the the best example of this, where you have engineers and supply chain managers and academics and uh, product design specialists and people from all different sort of um, areas working together, having spontaneous interactions. And then ends up creating new ideas, new uh, collaborations, new companies that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And um, yeah, so, so the piece is basically looking at each of those three trends. I think you can make an argument that each of them was sort of um, on a slow decline prior to coronavirus, but the combination of COVID and um, the administration's, frankly, botched response uh, has been making it much worse and might kind of serve as a breaking point. Uh, let, let's start with the student visa, the, the incoming international students, that pipeline of talent coming to the U.S. Uh, when we talk about decline there, what, are, what, what kind of numbers are we, are we looking at? Good question. Uh, you know, it's hard to know for sure, but uh, using one proxy, University of Arizona is projecting about an 80% decline in new international students um, coming to their universities. Um, and the the amount that are going to be sort of 
continued international students, so people that are already enrolled and whether they continue enrolling, uh, that's a little bit dicier, but maybe looking at a 40% drop. And uh, those numbers were actually before the Trump administration's recent moves to freeze a number of visa categories, including H-1B, J-1, and L-1 visas. Uh, which are actually pretty important visas that students rely on when they're they're making plans to come here in the first place. Um, because, of course, they're not coming just for the university education, as good as that is. They're also coming for a chance of potentially working here afterwards. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, as you mentioned in the article, there's um, you know a significant number of students, even those who don't intend to stay, they stick. I mean, they, they, there's a stickiness to getting an education here and living here for a number of years. But if they don't come in the first place, it doesn't stick. Exactly. And so I think, um, you know, you've been saying U.S. immigration policy has not been great for decades. And it, it's been getting, I think, pretty significantly worse, uh, especially in the last four years or so. Um, but we've kind of maintained our status for the most part as, you know, the world's premier destination for uh, top academics, for scientists, for technical practitioners, I think partially through a kind of inertia. Um, just based on the fact that we have been the best place to go in the past, that kind of sticks. And, you know, in spite of bad policy, we've been able to kind of um, maintain that status. But the coronavirus um, could represent kind of like, a, I guess, a big pause. You know, if you have, say, a, you know, a two-year period where international students are uh, hugely in decline, and then, you know, they still need to get educated during that period. And so then they start looking around for countries that have either gotten the coronavirus under control more quickly, which doesn't seem to be the United States. Or, uh, you know, maybe they decide to go to an education opportunity that's much closer to home. And once you're kind of already established, you start to get in the swing of things uh, at a different university or in a different country, it's it's pretty unlikely that you'll later end up going to the United States. So it's this combination of two big factors, right? So COVID has naturally slowed the rate of uh, students applying for, you know, uh, for graduate student positions and uh, research jobs here in the U.S., um, but then it's also, you mentioned it briefly, the Trump administration's uh, recent, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to put the right words on this, but their recent um, requirement that universities that were online only couldn't extend student visas to students. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of pieces here. So uh, in the broad strokes, um, the administration's failure to get coronavirus under control as quickly as other countries has is itself a deterrent for coming to the United States. Um, two is sort of, as I alluded to, there are a number of work visa categories like the H-1B, L-1, and J-1 that are on a six-month pause, um, and that reduces the incentive to come here. And then the third thing that you were just mentioning, uh, there was sort of a, a bit of a, a tiff um, with USCIS and universities about whether or not students would even be able to come to the country at all if they were on uh, a J or sorry, an F1 visa, which is the student visa, um, if, if all the classes were remote. And so kind of the compromise that's been worked out there, it seems like, is if you are already a um, student, in, you know, and this isn't your first year, uh, you can stay in the country. But if you're a new international student and your classes are remote, you won't be able to get into the country. Um, but even just the the uncertainty around all of that, it could have been much, much worse, is itself a kind of deterrent from coming here because um, it's now unclear. Like, does the United States as a country really want you as an international student? Um, yeah. And that just has to be part of the equation that now students have to weigh when they're deciding where they want to go study. Well, th this tiff happened at a key moment in the in the in the school year i mean it's mid-summer yeah. when students are trying to make those final plans do i pull the trigger on on going there or not um uh, i'm planning on on heading in the fall um yeah that makes a lot of sense it's actually interesting my um my partner used to work at a for-profit uh community college in central pennsylvania lots of first-gen college students and the like and um, I was actually somewhat familiar with this rule, the uh, in-person versus online class requirement and how it affected the international students because it was something uh, – I'm not entirely sure if it was just uh, newly enforced during the Obama administration or if it was actually put in place at the time. But it was an effort to get at for-profit schools, many of which are predominantly online, You know, your uh, Phoenix, University of Phoenix, uh, Grand yep. Canyon uh, uh Southern New Hampshire, all all those online only schools, the Obama administration was trying to crack down on the number of students that they were uh, attracting and thus the student loan debt that was being incurred. And so it, there's some kind of irony here that this rule is resurfacing here in the next administration being used for different purposes. I mean, it doesn't seem like the target 
but the target certainly isn't for-profit universities. Um, I'm not even sure if universities are the target at all. I mean, is this uh, is the fact that it's affecting or that was uh, targeting universities just uh, you know was the real target all along to depress the number of incoming in incoming future immigrants, or was this? I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine the the logic in the head of of the folks at the agency. Like, what are they trying yeah. to do here? It, it's kind of hard to to get a good inside scoop in terms of what exactly they were thinking. I mean, certainly you've seen that this administration has been, uh, you know, pretty actively hostile to, um, you know, high skill migrants that would like to come to the United States. And so I wouldn't, you know, totally rule it out that this was in some sense a, a uh, you know, a, a, a thought an act that was meant to deter high skill migrants from coming here. Uh, I mean, that's the whole point of this, you know, H-1B, J-1 uh, freeze. Um, but it might have also been sort of a negotiating tactic with universities to try to force them um, to open up. I, I think mm-hmm. there's sort of a, a perceived thought that if you can force everybody to open up maybe faster than they otherwise would have, um, that makes the economy seem like, you know, everything's going back to normal. And right. uh, especially in an upcoming election year, uh, that might be uh, deemed <laughs> yeah. important. Yeah, but I guess whatever the motive, the effect is the same, and it's it's bad. I mean, you, you provide some really kind of eye-opening numbers about the U.S. as a uh, destination for uh, uh, people who you know people who file patents. I mean, the the number of patents that come from immigrant innovators, the number of uh, Nobel prizes that come from uh, immigrant in- innovators. I mean, this w- could have downside effects not just for the next couple of years, but for the next generation. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about kind of the flows of international students, especially when you're you're getting them on, on the younger side, as students tend to be, it's not just about, you know, what is their intellectual output in the next five years, but about their next 20, their next 50, you know, uh, yeah. you're really getting them in some sense, like in, in the prime of their their intellectual career. Uh, you didn't have to worry about all the childcare costs, you know, for the first 18 years of their life. Uh, but you're now getting them right as they're learning and ready to maybe start, you know, using their their skills in the workforce. So just, you know, a couple stats that's worth pointing out. Um, over half of our, you know, billion dollar tech startups uh, were founded in part by an immigrant and have top uh, immigrants as the, their top executives. Um, you see that, uh, you know, by some metrics, they're responsible for over a quarter of total U.S. innovation and invention. You see that uh, immigrants that come to the United States have much higher rates of uh, you know, patenting, uh, you see that, especially for some of our, our technically minded disciplines. So if you look at STEM studies per se, um, 79% of our computer science graduate students are international students, uh, in, uh, electrical engineering, that's 81% in industrial engineering, I think it's 75%. So actually the vast majority of a lot of these STEM, um, especially graduate departments end up being international students. And those are precisely the departments where you're seeing a lot of the interesting innovative activities happening. And they're the skill sets that we, we really need for the companies of the future. And you've done a lot of uh, research on, I mean, so I think some people hearing those numbers will say, well, okay, I feel a little bit bad for these students are, are going to come and stay here and be engineers. But hey, this will open up opportunities for native born you know, future engineers, you know, the uh, Americans to have those opportunities. And I, I think you've done a lot of work on, no, 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 there, the shortage here, it's not as if there's this giant pool of people who want to do this high-skilled stuff and some people are being prevented from. I mean, there's a shortage, even if you let all the potential engineers in, we're facing a, a both national and global shortage of talent. So the bottleneck is around uh, the bottleneck is not the positions. The bottleneck is the number of talented people. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So to, to make like progress on the technological frontier, you really need just the best and brightest minds from those fields working together in a you know conducive institutional environment that the U.S. provides. Um, and then that's really what drives progress. And it's that progress that then creates new jobs, uh, you know, creates new industries um, and, and drives uh, certainly, you know, increases in living standards that we care about. Um, but also just on like a practical level, you see that international students end up being a huge cash boon for universities that may actually be cross subsidizing American students. So international students, um, you know, make up much larger percentage of say tuition revenue towards universities, uh, you know, compared to the number of them that are actually coming. And so that allows universities to offer more scholarships towards, you know, domestic American students that are, that are paying, you know, in-state tuition rates. Um, so if anything, I think you end up, you know, 
really cutting off uh, your nose to spite your face, I guess, um, if you end up, you know, cutting off these international students because you're not only reducing the amount of innovation, not only reducing the number of, you know, uh, high tech companies that are going to be formed and creating jobs for the future, but you're also cutting off, you know, very practically university funds that are cross subsidizing American students. Mm. Uh, I think this reminds me your point about uh, the importance of America, the American physical plant, you know, having uh, uh, quality laboratories, quality environments, communities of uh, cities of knowledge, to use Margaret Mara's phrase, uh, that can uh, generate productivity among innovators. Um, I'm because I think another objection that some listeners might uh, think of is that, well, okay, the number of international students coming to U.S. schools, it's not good for us. But is this just a zero-sum transfer of innovation to some other global hub? Like, in other words, will net human progress be the same if we scare away, you know, if we push away international students to the U.S.? Uh, and that's not great for us, but it'll all be fine in the kind of net global society-wide sense. Uh, is that true or, or, or not? Good question. Um, so I think one of the most consistent, you know, findings across economics in the past couple hundred years is just that in some sense, place matters and putting together lots and lots of smart people uh, in a close geographical environment ends up, you know, making them all smarter, making them all more productive. Um, so, you know, as an example, uh, in the lead up to World War II, uh, Germany ended up uh, sort of forcibly removing a bunch of uh, professors from their universities that had Jewish ancestry. And a lot of those professors, which included, you know, Albert Einstein and a bunch of the minds that later made up the Manhattan Project, uh, they ended up coming to the United States. And so we can actually look and see what was the productivity increases amongst American inventors in, say, downstream chemical patents. And they find that there's actually a 31% increase in the number of chemical patents being filed by American inventors, not even, you know, the ones that were coming over. So there's, yeah, these agglomeration effects that I was mentioning earlier means that not only do we have more smart people coming into our country, but it also means that the Americans that they're working with become smarter, more productive, have better ideas. Um, and then that also has, you know, global effects. Um, America, in some ways, you could think of it as providing the global public good of faster rates of innovation. And so if you start, you know, distributing all of these innovators, these top scientists around the country, you take them away from the agglomeration effects, um, they're all less productive. The global technological you know, frontier ends up slowing down and everyone ends up uh, having less progress as a result. So it's not only good for the United States that we kind of coalesce a lot of this top scientific talent, but it's also good for the world. Um, on that good for the world point, uh, something you mentioned in, a, in an article you're, you're still working on uh, is that not only does uh, do having immigrants in the U.S. provide productivity boosts through agglomeration effects to native born American workers, but there's also a sense that you touch on in an article that you're still working on. Um, it provides the kind of civic um, software uh, for how this technology is going to be deployed. It has a democratizing or liberalizing effect on deploying, you know, high tech innovation. And so we've seen that in the past. I mean, in a sense, so much of our social media was predicated on an assumed First Amendment sense. Uh, it was assumed that the internet should be open and free uh, from the get-go. And it, that might not remain true in the future, but that was kind of built into the DNA of internet innovation, in part because so much of it was happening in the U.S. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, technology ends up having a pretty large amount of, uh, I guess, path dependence. Um, sometimes the things that we think are settled in terms of, oh, you know, technology was always going to develop in one particular way. You know, VHSs were always going to beat out Betamax. Um, or in the United States, uh, it was always going to be uh, highways instead of car or instead of trains. Uh, end up being, you know, pretty path dependent based on what kinds of technologies get more investment, whether this be public funds or private funds. Um, and also just kind of weird oddities of history. Um, but if we want to affect the direction that technology goes, as you mentioned, you know, social media, especially the big social media platforms that are really used globally, end up sort of having an American bias towards free speech. And that's because it was American companies operating within an American legal system that were, ended up being the dominant countries. Um, but you could very easily imagine that, you know, if in the future it's, say, AI Chinese companies that end up, you know, building the platforms that everybody's using to build new AI products or, or whatnot, um, it will sort of have a bias towards those um, 
both legal systems and in some sense cultural values. And there there are big differences, you know, between uh, issues like free speech, issues like intellectual property protection, issues like separation between the government and the private sector um, that are pretty important. And so if we not only care about affecting the speed of technological innovation, but also its direction, then it, it's pretty important for the United States to also try to think strategically about its lead in that, that way. Okay, let's say you're running for president, Caleb. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> Watney 2020, 2020, and uh, I'm the debate moderator. And I ask you, you know, you've signaled your support for um, uh, maximizing or liberalizing immigration policy. And uh, <clears throat> would you be in favor of building a Hong Kong 2.0 somewhere on American soil and giving unlimited visas to refugees who settle there? If so, how would you sell that policy to ordinary Americans? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be in support of it. I mean, you see that, uh, you know, the, the people of Hong Kong are incredibly brave, incredibly smart. You know, they're one of the big, um, you know, both financial and technical uh, hubs of the world. And so there, there's tons of uh, human talent there that would be worth cultivating and, you know, putting it inside of U.S. institutions. Um but also, you know, they, they were very much, if you look at like the protests, almost looking up to the United States and saying like, mm. uh, it, it, I, I like the slogan that the United States should try to be the U.S. that Hong Kong thinks we are uh, <laughs> in terms of us representing, you know, kind of certain kinds of liberal democratic ideals of, of free speech um, and, you know, due process and whatnot. So that seems like exactly the kinds of uh, immigrants that we want in the United States. Um, and you, you kind of touched on, you know, maybe we could create a charter city of some sorts. This is an idea that Mark Letter has been working on a lot. Uh, I think, you know, usually that that's in terms of the developing world, but there's certainly no reason why we couldn't try to experiment with the creation of uh, new cities in the U.S. today. So, yeah. uh, sure, I'm all for it. The juxtaposition of that with what's been going on in Portland with, you know, a non-uniformed paramilitary federal agents abducting people. It's like, no, 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 that's not the lesson we're supposed to be taking from Hong Kong. It's the other side we were supposed Absolutely, to imitate. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty bad. Um, actually, I am reminded too, the historian in me uh, was thinking of the the Huguenots, you know, as they're driven out of France um, uh, by, was it, uh, I can't remember if it was the 14th, Louis the 14th, one of the Louis. Um, as all these French Protestants leave, they're made unwelcome. There's actually a, a large body of economic history literature talking about the productivity and innovation boosts they gave to places like England. Some of them settled in England, some in the United States, some all ar around the world. You got these little mini innovation hubs of Huguenot uh, refugees. And uh, that was true then, could be true today. So, you know. Uh, let's let's welcome in the 21st century Huguenots. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Yeah, totally in support. Now, okay, so we, we're, we're talking about China some here, uh, and specifically with Hong Kong, but let's think about China more broadly. Um, and this is from some work you're, you're, you've been working on um, about techno-hegemony which is interesting, hegemony, you know, the kind of totalizing power of a hegemon, uh, projecting power. Um, and uh, I, I suppose it's related to great power contest, to superpower struggle. So obviously China, the US, it, how does that work into the future of, of innovation, the rise of a new techno hegemon? And what, what the heck is a techno hegemon? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as, as a rough definition, I would say that um, – a techno hegemon is the country that is very clearly and obviously, in sort of in almost an uncontested way, um, the lever, the leader, or the driver of both technological and scientific progress, and then seeks to use that sort of uh, advantage um, on on the world stage, either diplomatically, uh, culturally, economically, in terms of you know supply chains or whatnot. Um, there are a lot of sort of um, softer advantages that are conveyed um, to the country that has a clear and obvious lead in the technological and scientific frontier. Um, so that's sort of, I, I think, a, a basic overview of what techno-hegemony is. And the United States, I think, has pretty clearly been, in some sense, the techno-hegemon for maybe the last um, 30, 40 years. The, the last time that we were maybe um, explicitly challenged for that role was by the Soviet Union. It was a pretty, you know, uh, totalizing moment when uh, Sputnik launched and another country was able to beat us, you know, in terms of getting a man into space. Um, and that became kind of this, this clear proxy battle where the rest of the world was watching and saying, 
uh, you know, in some sense, the country that was able to mobilize forces is able to, you know, make new scientific discoveries in terms of the space race um, that conveyed a kind of cultural signal, um, both of how productive your economic system could be, but also of the quality of, you know, minds that you had in your country. Um, and so the, the China is kind of challenging us in an explicitly uh, technological way that we, we haven't really seen in 30, 40 years. You know, they have this, a, a number of um, big state plans uh, to take, you know, official leadership in areas like quantum computing and AI and hypersonic missiles and, you know, uh, semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, you know, they have various target dates, 2030 is I know a big one. Uh, it remains to be seen, you know, whether they'll meet those, those specific deadlines. But just the fact that they are maybe perhaps willing to make an explicit challenge to lay down the gauntlet in that way uh, is interesting and, and certainly not something we've seen in quite a while. Oh, you so you have um, in your kind of draft piece, you, uh, I think, raised two prospects. And I, I thought they did a very good job of this, which was to say, Look, you know, it's entirely possible that China remains on the ascent and, and steals away from the U.S. kind of the lead. It becomes the techno hegemon um, and leaves the U.S. in the dust unless the U.S. changes its pol policy, unless it does something, will be left behind. And the bonus case is that even if China, you know, somehow stumbles, you know, it's self-inflicted, shoots itself in the foot with, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, crackdown on um I mean, there, there's all this buzz coming out of China right now about a crackdown on university students and uh, kind of a party purity, um, uh, re-emphasis on party orthodoxy and, and the like. So it's possible they'll, they'll stumble out of the gate here. Um, but even if they do, just securing America's place as a, as a global innovation leader is just good on the face of it. So in a sense, it almost doesn't matter um, whether China or the U.S. wins, we should have this have a pro-innovation policy because it's good on the face of it. Um, so you you have that one scenario, but then at the back of uh, one moment, you mentioned Japan and how, you know, in the back in the 1980s and 1990s, and this, this probably seems somewhat alien to um, those of us who are, who, you know, were just born in the eighties or, or in the nineties, but people in the U S policymakers in the U S freaked out constantly that Japan was going to challenge and overthrow America and its role as techno hegemon. Um, that didn't end up happening. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that tension between, you know, is is China going to challenge the US and and take uh, take our position as techno hegemon, or are they going to end up like Japan? And does that matter? Yeah, uh, great questions. Uh, so I, as you mentioned, you know, there was a lot of sort of cultural concern about uh, what happens as Japan continues to rise technologically and economically? Are they, you know, even as a tiny island nation, going to be able to uh, rival the United States uh, in this way? Um, and really kind of what you saw happen was a combination of factors. But I, I think maybe the single largest one was just that their their birth rates um, started to plunge and that caught up with them. Um, there's sort of a, a long line of economic research showing how uh, both for just economic productivity, but also economic dynamism, having a, a more youthful population is pretty useful. And I, I think that makes sense. You know, culturally, it's it's typically, you know, young, ambitious people are the ones that are willing to work 18-hour days, you know, to try to create a new startup that's going to uh, be a great success. Um, there's fewer people, you know, at age 50 or 60 that are going to be able to do that, um, partially because they have families, partially because, you know, they, they have fewer years left to work. And so, you know, the the odds of taking a huge risk or something, a huge gamble, just pay off less if you've only got, you know, 10 years left in your career. Um, so, yeah, there's a pretty well-established line of research that um, these demographic trends can, um, yeah, make countries uh, slow down both in terms of the economic productivity and their ability to generate new um, technological innovations. And so um, China is in some sense uh, poised for maybe, I, I like Ross Douthat has... Um, has the phrasing that perhaps we're in line for a Chinese decade, uh, where, where they, they have perhaps, you know, a decade of renewed vigor until their, uh, their demographics maybe catch up with them and they start to see that same slowdown that China took. And so that's going to make them in some sense more aggressive during that time if they know they only have a limited window to try to claim leadership. And that may be why, you know, they're, they're kind of going all in. Uh, if, if you wanted to make a football analogy, you could say, you know, they're uh, really just trying to maximize their chance of winning the Super Bowl in the next year or two because, you know, maybe they have a, a quarterback on a young rookie contract or something. <laughs> yeah, 
That's great. No, it's a perfect illustration. Yeah, you've got yeah. a window, your championship window, and it might be closing for China before yeah, before too long. Yeah. But again, um, I, I don't want to, you know, sound too definitive one way or the other. I think that's that's certainly a plausible scenario, but it could also be the case that, you know, they, they find ways around that. Uh, and obviously, they have a much, much, much larger domestic population than Japan. And so it might take the, it much longer for, you know, you to see the, the effects of that slowdown. Um, and so, yeah, certainly there's there's a risk that China um, could end up surpassing the United States if we don't take, uh, you know, necessary reforms. And I think that would be bad in terms of uh, the direction that they might take technology. You've seen them uh, have a much greater willingness to uh, basically set up a surveillance state, um, you know, within the country and to potentially export that around the world. You know, they're trying to, to make uh, sales of these technologies to uh, countries like, you know, Venezuela. Um and I think there, there's also maybe an ideological component to this in the same way that that part of what drove the, the Soviet Union to, to view the United States with such great distaste was a fundamental view that like they wanted to show the world that the socialistic system um, could be viable. And it wasn't just, you know, the end of history, liberal democratic capitalism was the future of the rest of the world. I, I think there, there's an element of this for China, too. Um, there's a, a China scholar, Tanner Greer, who's done a lot of really good translation work, you know, looking at what, what does the, the Chinese Communist Party want? And uh, they certainly make it very explicit um, internally that they desire to show the rest of the world, you know, you don't have to bow to liberal democratic capitalism, that you can have, uh, you know, these systems with Chinese uh, characteristics. And certainly their uh, crackdown on the, the Uyghur Muslims uh, has been extremely repressive. Um, and uh, it would be, I think, bad for the rest of the world if they realized that that kind of governance model was sustainable. Yeah, I uh, agree. Um, it, it's actually it. it kind of doubles down on the extent to which um, immigration policy, especially the last several years and under the Trump administration has been so self-defeating. I mean, the, the U S is, is somewhat exceptional in, in being a developed country that still has high immigration rates. I mean, the only reason why our birth rate is, you know, 2.1 plus. So why it's still growing is because of immigration and immigrants who continue to have, you know, the, it takes time for immigrant birth rates to fall. It takes a, a you know a bit of a generation, and so that's why we have uh, we still have population growth. Unlike Western most of Western Europe, unlike most of East Asia uh, or at least developed East Asia, I should say. Um, and so you know we're looking. If you think of it as a great power contest, and uh, our competitors are facing a, a demographic cliff because of declining birth rates, uh, the last thing we should be doing is trying to join them on the cliff by discouraging immigration. <laughs> I mean, it just seems that it's such a, such a horrible self-defeating idea. No, the, I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and especially, I, I think it's good to, to recognize that China has been pretty explicit about the fact that talent acquisition is central to their you know, ability to compete with the United States. They have multiple party documents talking about uh, you know, one of the biggest barriers to, say, their progress in fields like AI is the fact that all of their top graduate students want to go live and work in the United States. And so they're trying to make, you know, pretty uh, concerted efforts both to recruit back, um, you know, scientists and university students from the United States. Uh, their, their program is called the, the Thousand Talents Program. And then they have a, a similar program, the Thousand Foreign Talents Program, which is supposed to offer a similar set of incentives for other international uh, talents to come and settle in China. Uh, but in some sense, their their weakness, perhaps, if you think about their innovation engine versus ours, is the fact that they are just simply not as good uh, historically at assimilating immigrants in the way that the United States has. Um, I, I sort of describe the U.S. innovation uh, system as being an open system where we try to, you know, take the best minds from all around the world and integrate them. Um, China, historically, has maybe been a closed innovation system where they are betting on their much larger domestic population, perhaps their more streamlined state bureaucracy, their willingness to just throw, you know, many more resources um, at the problem through, you know, direct straight support. Um, but I think if we play our cards right, we have every reason to think that the open innovation system that we have uh, can outcompete them. But we actually have to, like, play into that, I guess. It's striking then that, like, because we have this historically open immigration system and we already have pre-existing communities, hubs of, hubs of high-skilled international talent, we can kind of coast and get away with it in a way that China can't. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, 
the United States has uh, historically been pretty dominant in, you know, fields of, of science and technology and just having all of the world's cutting edge researchers, uh, having most of them in the United States, yeah, creates a kind of momentum, a certain kind of inertia where people want to keep on being where the top cutting edge research is happening. Um, and actually, it, there's an interesting kind of historical story about maybe how we came to occupy that role. I think you you could almost say that the story of the the, the 20th century is the story of the U.S. rise to to scientific and technological heights by systematically uh, integrating the top scientific minds of their rivals. Um, I mean, in 1900, uh, compared to Europe, especially the U.S. was a little bit of intellectual backwater. Um, so if you look at the say the Nobel Prize in Physics as a as a proxy here. Um, it started in 1901. Um, in the first 30 prizes, so between 1901 and 1933, there were a couple years missing there for World War I. Um, the United States uh, was only involved in three of those 30 um, prizes, so 10%. Um, and then we kind of had um, three big academic waves of talent that I can talk a little bit more about. But the net effect of those has been that since 1934, the United States has been involved in two thirds of the Nobel Prizes in physics. Wow. Um, wow. So yeah, just absolutely massive scientific domination. Yeah. So you know, we we've had that work in our favor for for decades now. Um, of course, the the downside is is that you know it, it's possible to get fat and lazy and to think just to assume that we're always going to have that advantage. Where if that flips, if that kind of inertia and the uh, power of uh, the agglomeration effects, I mean, if someone else is able to capture that tipping point, it can get real bad real fast in terms of attracting talent. That's exactly right, yeah. And I think why we need to be so vigilant about it uh, when you could have potential breaking points like, you know, COVID. Because, um, yeah, other countries have been, have had much better policies than us um, and are, are trying to, you know, pretty proactively um, poach top talent from the United States. You know, Canada, as far back as 2013, has been putting up uh, billboards in Silicon Valley saying, hey, are you having trouble, you know, getting immigration visas for your top, uh, you know, international talent you want to recruit? Come up to Toronto. It's so much easier here. Um, and since then, Toronto has really blossomed as a great tech hub. Um, the UK, uh, just in February, launched a really interesting new uh, immigration visa called the Global Talent Visa, which is an uncapped program so they can accept, you know, as many as they think are, are um warranting of it. But it, yeah, it's really aimed at the the top international scientists, at people that show a lot of potential. And they're they're trying to pretty proactively, you know, tear down barriers and make the UK uh, a welcome place for for real top international talent. Similarly, Australia, you know, uh, has uh, a pretty attractive, you know, they have a startup visa that the United States does not have. Um, there's really no pathway if you want to come to the United States explicitly to be a, a startup founder, and you don't have like uh, half a million dollars in like personal cash to, to put towards it. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can get into Australia, but you can't get into the U.S. Well, we actually have an example uh, of that from one of our previous episodes. I did a little series on <clears throat> the origins of Silicon Valley, uh, immigration, venture capital. But actually, one of the venture the, – the father of American and really global venture capital is uh, Georges Doriot, who's French, famous French car manufacturing family. His father's a big innovator. He comes to the U.S. to do business school at Harvard. And the whole goal was for him to go back and run the family company. But, it, you know, education, being here was sticky. And so he ended up staying in the U.S. and invented venture capital without which you don't have Silicon Valley in anything like its present form. So, I mean, that you know, that was at that transition moment. He comes over in um, the 1930s, as I recall, uh, late 20s, 30s. And um, so it's during that wave, it's that moment when America goes from being a kind of in a relative innovation backwater to being on its way to techno hegemon. And at the time, I mean, 1920s and 30s, if you look at the history of essentially any American chemist or scientist of the late 19th and early 20th century, the place they all went to study was Germany. Yeah. I mean, People that German universities, you know, all those big German petrochemical companies. Um, in fact, as late as my father's a chemist, and as late as the seventies, your first you, they actually had to learn a foreign language to get a PhD at Clemson. I mean, most schools around the country, most most uh, you know, turning out PhDs in chemistry and the like, you had to learn German because so many yep. articles were written in German well up until the the 1930s and uh how quickly that changed i mean of course they had exogenous factors like world war ii and you know they talk about self-harm they they <laughs> killed millions of their own people i mean that that's a great way to hurt innovation 
uh, not just well, yeah, but but that being yeah. said, it can, it can happen real quick. A betting person in 1930 would have just assumed you know Central European German dominance in scientific innovation for the foreseeable future. No, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and yeah, and there, there were a number of, of interesting waves. So uh, just to maybe put a few numbers to this. So the, the first wave uh, I think you were starting to identify is sort of as the Nazi regime was starting to come to power, they were um, persecuting uh, scientists, especially of, uh, you know, Jewish uh, ancestry and forcibly dismissing them from the university posts. Um, and the United States had uh, an organization, the Institute for Advanced Studies, um, that was trying to pretty proactively recruit them to the United States. And then um, also to a lesser extent, uh, the UK got some of that talent. Um, but that included, um, I think the, the stat is something like 15% of their uh, their physicists were dismissed during that wave. But they made up a, a remarkable 63% of their academic <laughs> citations in physics. Wow. So just the absolute you know superstars of their profession yeah. uh, were the ones that were affected. Uh, and a lot of them ended up coming to the U.S. And then the the second wave was kind of after World War II, Operation Paperclip. Um, both the USSR and the U.S. were kind of in a race to attract um, top Germans, uh, scientists, mathematicians, the U.S. governor von Braun and a few other scientists who end up um, being pretty pivotal, uh, pivotal, pivotal in the um, uh, Apollo projects and helped get us to the moon. And of course, in that first wave, you kind of had the, the Manhattan Project founders. So I think between the Apollo Project and the Manhattan Project, you could argue that you know the two greatest uh, technological achievements, and certainly the two that solidified U.S. techno hegemony, um, were the direct result of international talent in U.S. scientific institutions. And this yeah. is just always how we've been dominant. Well, this is the, I mean, the historical cautionary tale here is that, so if you look at just the U.S. history, you know, what we're currently going through is the is a resurgence of ethno nationalism unlike anything we've seen since the 1920s and the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan, which was the second Ku Klux Klan was primarily targeted at um, uh, immigrants, especially Jewish immigrants. I mean, the very Jewish immigrants trying to flee the Nazi regime often faced persecution from, uh, you know, Klansmen and other groups here in the U.S. Um, at the time. And so, I mean, in, the, in a sense, you know, the mistakes that were made across the world in places like Germany and to a lesser extent in the U.S., thankfully to a somewhat lesser extent, um, you know, had huge knock-on effects for innovation. I mean, of course, there are more important stuff than innovation. There's the, the global genocide. There's uh, yep, yep. All, all the other trappings. But it has effects for innovation that, that um, you know, echo over the next century. And we're going through a moment like that right now. We are in the position – we are Germany in, 19, in the 1920s and 30s. And we have to decide facing a wave of ethno nationalism. I mean, we're not Germany post 1933, thankfully. <laughs> the Nazis haven't taken over. Um, but um, but we, we're already making the kinds of bad decisions that the Germans made in the late 1920s, and 1930s, driving away top global talent, driving away, uh, you know, J Jewish talent, driving away. Um, and uh, so there's a there is a cautionary, a direct cautionary tale, as well as uh, something, you know, there's a moment of promise, too, that. Rather than driving away talent, surely we should be doing the opposite, which is more actively attracting talent. In fact, in this piece you were writing, uh, you talk about setting up a department of pro-migration. What's, what's pro-migration? What's that department supposed to do? Yeah. Uh, so this is kind of a fun idea. Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, the economic historian Anton Howes, uh, based in the UK, has kind of uh, coined the term uh, – pro-migration, pro-migration, you know, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, to basically uh, try to, to make a distinction between a, a more reactive, uh, you know, immigration or migration where you basically like let the top immigrants come to you um, and then a proactive pro-migration where you're trying to more actively recruit them and bring them to your country and help them, you know, get settled. And so he kind of traces in his original post um, the long history of the UK in doing this. They used to um, you know, basically uh, try to poach off top, you know, metallurgists and inventors, especially from, you know, Germany and Austria-Hungary, and get them to come to the UK. Um, but I think you you could look at a, a couple of those academic waves, you know, what the Institute for Advanced Studies was doing with a lot of those top um, Jewish scientists and trying to actively recruit them to the United States. I, I think you could count that as a kind of um, pro-migration. And so uh, I, I was sort of sketching out um, what it might look like to be, you know, more systematic about that. And, and one of the big problems in our current immigration system is there's what economists call a principal action or principal agent problem, 
where um, the people that are making the decisions aren't, they don't have the aligned incentives uh, with the, the people that are end, end up getting affected. So a lot of, you know, the individual USCIS adjudication officers who are the ones that are making a lot of day-to-day -day decisions about the kinds of immigrants to let in, who to prioritize, who to give visas to, um, they come from national security backgrounds and their mental model seems to be more aligned with, you know, how can I, you know, minimize the chance of, say, a terrorist coming into the United States rather than a, a growth mindset of how can I maximize, you know, the, the possible growth for the United States. And so, yeah, they really have no incentive to consider uh, what does it mean for the U.S. that we are turning away this 17-year-old, you know, drone engineer? Um, and we, we want them to think about those kinds of incentives. So in the corporate world, uh, you see a lot of companies end up having, you know, elaborate talent scouting departments, or they contract with headhunting agencies to try to proactively identify, uh, you know, people either at other firms or, you know, in, in top universities and try to actively recruit them to their, their companies. Um, and you can imagine trying to do something uh, similar on the U.S. level. So in this particular example, you know, I sketch out, maybe you could have uh, advanced talent scouts, uh, you know, called pro-migration agents who try to go out and look at, you know, the, the top uh, academics, the top engineers, the top um, inventors of various countries, uh, interview them and then, you know, try to, to recruit them to the United States and give them, you know, an offering of uh, permanent residence or even citizenship. Um, and then you you could almost reward those pro-migration agents based on the quality of the applicants that they bring in. So if you, uh, you know, have someone who becomes a wealthy startup founder, if they uh, have a very high salary because they're such a valuable AI engineer, if they are an academic and they win a prominent, you know, award, if they have certain number of patent citations or paper citations, you know, you could imagine any number of metrics of success that we care about. Uh, and then ended up, you know, giving bonuses to the pro-migration agents who can, uh, you know, proactively identify the most promising young people and get them into the United States. That's a great idea. I mean, and I think your your point is well made, which is, you know, uh, I think our listeners will be familiar with the the precautionary principle and the, the bureaucratic logic, which is that, I mean, when was the last time you heard um, – someone praise, I mean, or that, uh, you know, the news headlines praise a government department for allowing in someone who responsible for innovation. What we actually see in the headlines is, you know, blank Department of Homeland Security or blank, you know, whatever government ag agency you want to fill in the blank. Um, they missed this terrible, dangerous person who did something bad afterwards. I mean, so the incentive structure is to minimize the bad headlines because they don't get good headlines. So, you, you know, go with zero downside risk, no matter how high the upside opportunity. And so that makes that makes perfect sense. You have to do something to fundamentally change that incentive structure if you want to if you want to get get something done. So I like the idea. Um, I like the idea of, of, of Internet of um, the U.S. deploying headhunters to, to attract top talent. <laughs> that, that's fun. How, where did the idea come from? Do you just. Uh, yeah, I was kind of thinking, I think it actually came about, uh, current uh, USCIS is, is facing a big um, a budget crunch because right now the way the department is funded is they get some portion of the number of visa applications. And so as there's been, you know, a huge number of visa freezes, they've had, you know, understandably much, many fewer applications. And that makes up a huge portion of USCIS's uh, revenue. And so that's causing all sorts of issues. And that got me thinking, uh, you know, what if you almost, uh, you could also imagine funding the department based on uh, some percentage of the income that their their top, uh, you know, candidates end up getting. Um, so an income sharing agreement is what you see sometimes with uh, schools that, that try to increase the, the you know, the talent. Uh, Lambda School is a big example of this. But you can imagine, yeah, if you let in, you know, a number of top AI scientists and then they're making, you know, 500K salaries, if you take a 1%, a you know, income tax on them for, you know, five years or something um, based on coming in for, through a certain kind of, uh, you know, visa program, um, that would be another way you could try to rearrange incentives for the, the agents. I like the idea. So uh, I'll keep our listeners posted uh, if, and we'll put the, the um, article in our show notes if it's out in time for this episode. Uh, but if not, keep an eye out for Caleb's latest paper. I actually wanted to revisit an idea that you uh, had a few months back. You and Alex Stapp wrote a white paper 
in April titled Masks for All, in which he called for the Trump administration to use the Defense Production Act to boost personal protective equipment production. So, you know, masks and gloves and, and the like. Uh, so explain that, what, what you argued for in the white paper briefly. Yeah. So, um, you know, this was, um, you know, towards the beginning of the coronavirus uh, situation, we were just realizing the uh, huge dearth of personal protective equipment um, that, that especially, you know, first line responders were going to be facing. And when faced with the question of, you know, how can we massively increase the supply of something, an economist naturally says, well, let's use the price system. If we need, you know, lots and lots of orders of something, um, you know, let's let's just uh, be willing to pay a lot of lot of money to to produce things very very quickly, um, and so then we were doing some research and realized that yeah, the Defense Production Act, um, which is I think commonly associated with more of like a nationalization approach that you can yeah. kind of do through Title One, has another title called Title Three, uh, which enables you to basically yeah do pretty massive purchase guarantees or purchase orders, and so you can imagine you know the government basically saying. Uh, we're going to be willing to, uh, you know, accept as many orders as possible up to, uh, you know, X million number of masks um, per week, and we'll be willing to pay up to, you know, this top number. And then that would, you know, massively uh, increase the the investment that uh, companies are willing to make, which is, I think, the, the, the big incentive you're trying to correct for. Because uh, if you're a, a mask manufacturer, it, you're unsure what demand for masks look like, not necessarily in two months, you're pretty sure it's going to be pretty high in two months. But if you're investing a lot into the, you know, big, expensive factory equipment, you you care about what demand looks like in a year from now, in two years from now. Um, and so without assurances that you're going to be able to, to find the kind of market you need, you're going to be unwilling to, to make the huge investments that you need um, to really uh, increase PPE production over a longer time horizon than, you know, just a two month period. Um, and so we thought, yeah, purchase guarantees, um, especially if you stipulated them, you know, we're going to be buying X number of million masks for at least, you know, 18 months or something. Um, you know, that would give manufacturers the kind of certainty they need to actually really massively ramp up production. Um, as I recall, there were, there were some deregulatory aspects using, I think, Title III as well um, of the Defense Production Act to uh, encourage new entrants, uh, you know, because uh, as it as it stood, one of the bottlenecks was the uh, FDA has had all these hurdles on if you wanted to manufacture a mask, you had to certify that the mask meet, met all these uh, benchmarks and the requirements to do so were very onerous, which was another way of discouraging uh, new entrants in, into starting factories and pumping out masks. So, I mean, there was a deregulatory, deregulatory component of the plan as well, as I recall. Um, I, I actually was – in broadly in favor of it. I mean, even though a purchase mandate, you know, the purest libertarian isn't usually a fan of, I mean, this is a direct government intervention in, you know, through purchase guarantee. It's not like nationalization as some people are calling for the use of the DPA, but at the same time, you are going to, you're skewing the kind of market price signal, but, you know, in an emergency, sometimes it's worth sacrificing efficiency and enduring increased fraud, um, in exchange for brute numbers. I mean, you, sometimes you have to do that in an emergency. I mean, you think of this with the, with the military. I mean, we all make fun of the, the Pentagon and like $500 toilet seats. But during a wartime, we'll put up with that fraud and uh, inefficiency because we there's some kind of brute output that's required. That's right. Yeah. You, you could kind of think about um, with with either, you know, a private sector actor or with the government, um, the, the real risk that you're trying to compensate against is the risk of overproduction. What happens if we make so many masks that, you know, we end up having more than we need? Um, and for private sector actors who are profit, ma profit maximizing, that's like a pretty deliberating uh, decision. You know, they want to make sure that they don't overinvest in their their fixed costs and then, you know, are left with the uh, the, the bag, you know, uh, if the, the crisis ends up uh, ending sooner than expected, you know, especially if like a, a vaccine were to suddenly uh, come around the corner and then all these masks are no longer needed. But for the federal government, the risk of overproduction is much less costly. Uh, you know, we, we've actually realized that one of the, the biggest flaws that we perhaps had in the lead up to this whole crisis was the government wasn't stockpiling, uh, you know, enough uh, PPE and um, surgical masks and N95 masks. Uh, and those can, you know, keep for, for quite a while in storage. So our so solution was in some sense saying, hey, let's transfer this, this huge risk of overproduction 
um, away from the private sector and towards the government, who in some sense created the problem by not stockpiling enough in the first place. Right, um, right. You know, yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the worst case scenario is we overproduce stock of the way in warehouses for, you know, for a couple of decades until the next kind of pandemic, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or, you know, um, if it ends up, you know, being that maybe, you know, the U.S. has enough masks, there are plenty of other countries that are, you know, going to end up uh, seeing coronavirus outbreaks, um, you know, either right now or at some point in the future. And so, you know, having those on hand, you can either, you know, hey, I hear the U.S. likes exporting, there's an export opportunity, or you could, you know, even use it as like a, a charitable, uh, you know, give it away to, to low-income countries that don't have the same fiscal capacity as the U.S. Now, I will say I was I was a fan of the white paper and the proposal. Uh, the, the government didn't end up doing it. Um, but I, I actually was pretty impressed with how quickly left on its own, um, you know, market forces were able to ramp up PP production. I mean, to the point that, you know, by May, by mid-May, you know, you could find masks once again being sold everywhere from, you know, the usual masks, the surgical type masks to, you know, I don't know, Hanes, the, the underwear company was producing masks. You can find them in Walmart or, you know, any kind of retail outlet now sells masks. So we we actually did work through the the crunch more quickly than I would have thought um, at the beginning of April, end of end of March. Um, yeah, I mean, there there were some, you know, government uh, actions that were maybe quasi versions of purchase guarantees. So I think our idealized version of the proposal would have basically accepted contracts from almost any manufacturer, you know, even like clothing manufacturers that are trying to switch from, you know, producing clothing to producing masks. Uh, what the Trump administration instead did was a bunch of one-off contracts with pre-existing manufacturers. And so I think that did help alleviate the supply. Um, but maybe not quite as efficiently as, uh, you know, it would have in, in our ideal version of it. Um, you've also seen that, uh, you know, China has been investing, uh, you know, lots of money in increasing their own um, supplies. And after they kind of handled uh, maybe the first wave of coronavirus, they started exporting a lot of mask sales. So I think that's also where where some of the additional supply came from. But it's worth reiterating that um, still, especially for like frontline medical workers, where we're now facing a second wave of kind of, yeah. uh, especially N95 masks, those have been uh, in crucial supply, because uh, you just end up going through a lot of them if you have, you know, hundreds of nurses uh, working, um, you know, full-time shifts. Do you have any theory for why the second wave, I mean, because things even for frontline workers had mostly eased by the end of May, early June, um, but now here in July, we're seeing, you know, again, critical shortages for like hospital workers and the like. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, it's it's hard to I mean supply chains are in some sense um, deep and mysterious and it, it's hard to know all of their inner workings they they cross continents and I think that there was also you know maybe some uh, you know bubbles of supply that we would suddenly find in a random warehouse that we had forgotten about or you had like you know lots of tech companies that ended up donating their extra masks that they had um, and so I think that ended up helping alleviate um, some of the supply but I think we're still coming back to kind of the fundamental barrier, which is in some sense that um, our manufacturing production capacity, especially in the, U the United States, still hasn't increased to the level that we need. Um, I think the, the other thing that I would maybe point out is we're kind of stuck in this weird equilibrium in the U.S. where most people um, of the general public, they are wearing masks, but they're wearing you know cloth masks. Whereas in countries like South Korea and in Taiwan, uh, where they were more aggressive about trying to increase domestic surgical mask production, everyone there is wearing surgical masks. Um, and as you know, we've been seeing a number of studies have come out showing that surgical masks are, in fact, um, you know, significantly more effective than cloth masks um, in terms of slowing down the spread of the virus. So I think that's another way in which maybe we we managed to get around some of the supply constraints by just basically adopting a worse version of masks. But you know, the ideal world would have had um, surgical masks for everyone. Mm, that's a good point. Um one more point of current events uh, I wanted to touch on. Uh, you know, there's been lots of headlines about the Chinese consulate in Houston, I believe, um, being disinvited by the U.S. It's part of this struggle, concerns over stealing in industrial espionage and stealing secrets um, and the, the Chinese consulate burning papers and records and all kinds of drama there. Um Let's say so. Let, let's take our position here. We're talking about techno hegemony. We're talking about liberalizing immigration laws. Um, those of us who are broadly pro-immigration would do so, kind of on the ethical merits alone. 
um, or and as well as on the you know the you know utilitarian output, like it's good for productivity, it's good for economic growth, and so on. Um, how would you pitch this to folks who don't care about those things as much as as we do, but who are concerned about you know Chinese power or concerned about diminishing American power? Uh, why why should we not be afraid? I mean, because because I don't doubt that that's it's true. I do not doubt that Chinese consulates are involved in uh, industrial, you know, uh, secret stealing and, and and the like. Yeah, uh, that's a good question, and and certainly it, it's kind of a, a hard one to wrestle with, partially because it's it's hard to know what the full scope or scale of you know Chinese industrial espionage attempts are. Um, you know, you hear lots of one-off reports, you hear of isolated incidents, um, but it's kind of inherently a hard thing to measure. Um, and so it, it's hard to know what the, the full scale um, of these, these espionage attempts are, or, you know, even if, uh, you know, Chinese government is actually ordering a lot of these, you know, to what extent are they actually successful or they're getting useful information is, I guess, a whole nother question of efficacy. Um, I think my main point would be that that in some sense it, it is worth worrying about, and it's worth you know probably taking stronger stances um, to you know fight back against these. We can have counter surveillance networks. Um, you know we can try to be more selective about you know if you have uh, someone closely connected with like the Politburo in China, that's someone to be you know much more suspicious of than just you know an everyday uh, average Chinese person who's trying to come to the United States you know to study physics or something. Um, and so, yeah, let's use discretion, but it, it's also not worth, I guess, shooting ourselves in the foot and cutting off our entire access to, to talent flows, because there are also limits on the kinds of things that you can plausibly steal. Um, I sometimes like to give the example that, you know, if you were walking down the street and you suddenly, uh, you know, had the, the blueprints for, you know, the latest uh, government, you know, fighter jet or for a particle collider, it's it's unclear exactly what you would do with that um, because a lot of the knowledge that's actually you know it takes to build say a new state of the art particle collider isn't captured in blueprints. It's captured in tacit knowledge that you know the the workers have or in the kind of intellectual in infrastructure that ends up being created at these companies that you can't easily transfer. And so um, yeah, I, I think there's a whole kind of intangible. Uh, intellectual capital element of this that that's very difficult to steal. Um, and in general, we, we kind of want to be the location that is so far on the cutting edge that people are trying to steal from us rather than the other way around. Um, so, so my top priority would be, I guess, making sure that we, we maintain our status as, you know, the techno hegemon is the, the, the most cutting edge place to do these kinds of, uh, research. But I, I would also be, you know, totally in support of, you know, more, I guess, one-off or, uh, more discretionary, uh, policies to try to reduce espionage on the margin. There is a kind of funny sense in which um, some of these actions can have a, have a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect, which is if you're worried about, say, you know, Chinese scientists sending back what they learn while they're here, you know, what a great way to guarantee they send back everything that they've learned is to force them to go back. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like yeah. If, you, if you drive out all the, the you know Chinese scientists and send them all back to China, where they can have wonderful agglomeration effects in their home country, you've probably done more damage than could ever have been done by a few one-off, um, you know, uh, uh, spies. Essentially, no, right? I, I think like, that's exactly right. I, 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 this is very speculative, but I, I have you know half jokingly said before that. Um, you know, maybe China's plan here is to, you know, dial up the, uh, you know, the the visuals of industrial espionage next, you know, up to 11, like try to make it almost kind of obvious, be a little bit sloppy about it. Um, because then, you know, on the plus side, if, if America doesn't react at all, hey, you, you know, have a few more blueprints than you had before. <laughs> but on the plus side, if they overreact and they shut off all of your talent flows, then they've solved this big problem for you of Chinese student retention, which, you know, you have been having very limited success in being able to, to stop. Uh, I like that. This is the galaxy brain approach. I yeah, like exactly. That's the galaxy brain take. Again, I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily what's happening, but um, yeah. it, it almost fits the fact pattern. Yeah, yeah. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. It's great talking with you, Paul. I suspect that after listening to my conversation with Caleb, that you feel, as I do, a sense of deep and utter frustration with how backwards and self-defeating the national conversation about immigration often is. 
We call this show Building Tomorrow in a metaphorical sense. You know, that all of us chipping in with our particular skills and visions in the communities where we live, that we can collectively contribute to a better future for everyone. But in talking of you know these engineers, scientists, programmers, researchers, and the like, we are very literally talking about those who build tomorrow. And we are doing our damnedest to drive them away, to send them to build someone else's tomorrow first. There are times where I wish I could march down to the Capitol with one of those, you know, those water spray bottles that you use to squirt your misbehaving pet when it's like uh, eating its own poop and just give them a big old squirt in the face saying, bad politician, stop it, bad boy. Feel real good. I mean, (laughs) until they arrested me, I suppose, Uh, which means I have to settle for the ballot box instead. Until next week, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.